Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Quick announcement up top, stay tuned at the end of the episode for a new segment I'm trying out where I answer a listener question fielded from the You Have Permission Facebook group. Andrew asked about my wife and I leaving our church a few months back and how things are going in the new church search. So stay tuned at the end if that interests you. Now, today's episode has a good deal of straight up New Testament scholarship But as always, we try our best to explain jargon as we go, and we never drop a name without an explanation of who that person is. That said, this is the kind of topic that I really don't think every Christian needs to care about. This one is kind of for the nerds, those who can't help but dig deeply, who are called to or compelled to dig deeply. You can follow, imitate, and worship Jesus without anything we are talking about today. But Dale will argue that for those of us who have the interest and capacity, we might find a lot of value in looking separately at the diverse and divergent pictures of Jesus that the gospel writers present to us. In fact, there is some really good on-the-ground devotional stuff if we apply Dale's principles in our own personal Bible reading or our group worship contexts. Here's how the structure of this episode will go. First, we're going to hear from Dale about his overall project and views. And specifically, we will go through the various Jesuses 
of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Then we're going to hear from my friend Kenny, who has some particular concerns and questions, mostly about the Gospel of John. After that, we're going to go back to Dale to talk about the Jesus of John's Gospel, and Dale will address Kenny's particular concerns. Then we'll go briefly back to Kenny to get his reaction to the entirety of my interview with Dale. Now, normally I would put someone like Kenny at the beginning of the episode, as we've done with episodes on evolution and progressive Christianity. But since Kenny mostly was only concerned with John, it made more sense to put him in the middle. And then, of course, after all that, I'll answer that question about our church transition. So, Dr. Dale S. Martin is retired professor of New Testament at Yale and the author of many books. The one we will be talking about primarily today is called Biblical Truths, and I kind of devoured it. I also devoured his book, Sex and the Single Savior, and I'll soon be working my way through The Corinthian Body, where he addresses topics like the descriptions of Jesus' resurrected body. In short, Dale is the real deal. He has been both interesting to me and also devotionally helpful. He's really the kind of guy that I wish I had been shown his work growing up in a more evangelical context, but uh, I didn't because I was evangelical. So I'm, I'm grateful to be discovering him in my 30s, and here is the beginning of my chat with Dale. I'm here with Dr. Dale Martin, and Dr. Martin, we did a bit of biography with you when you were a guest on the Depolarized podcast, my other show, so we're not going to do too much of that here. If people want to listen to that, there's a link to that episode in the show notes. Now, do you remember when you first noticed what we might call the divergence of the four gospel accounts? You know, there's a way to read them on their surface where they, they seem to contradict each other. And do you remember when that first started and, and were you challenged by that? Were you interested by it? What are your memories about that? I, it was actually in a course in my college. I went to a college that is a Church of Christ college. I was a music major, but I was still very interested in biblical studies. And I took a course that was simply titled Jesus. And the professor who taught it, who went on to be dean of Pepperdine University in California, which was a much more liberal Church of Christ-oriented school, he was the professor, and he would kind of hint at the differences among the different Gospels about the betrayal of Jesus. Hmm. And I remember saying to him one time, raising a question one time in class. Now, most there were about 45 students in the class, and almost all of them were men, and they were Bible majors, because you could only be a minister of a church in that church at the time if you were a man. I remember raising a question one time with this professor and saying, wait a minute, you're telling me that Jesus in Luke is saying this, but Jesus in John is saying this? <laughs> and I said, doesn't that mean that there are really different portrayals of Jesus and the different Gospels? And he kind of got a smirk on his face. He said, well, Mr. Martin, we maybe we'll get to that at some point. That's awesome. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even answer the question. Do you remember your feeling at the time? Like, was that unsettling? Was it exciting? It was exciting to me, but I didn't feel any threat to my faith. I just thought, oh, wow, this is interesting. And I wanted to pursue it. What was really interesting is that after that class, I remember standing out of the hall, in the hallway outside of that classroom and all these guys coming up to me 
and saying stuff like, you can't ask that kind of question. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how good foot soldiers are at, at policing the groups of, uh, you know, the boundaries of their own group, right? And the fact is, I always knew there were discrepancies in the Bible. I mean, I remember as, even as a teenager going up to preachers in my church and saying, wait a minute, there's something going on different here. And they'd say, well, we can talk about that. So let's talk about harmonization for a little bit, because there is a sense, you know, I, I told you on the depolarized taping, I, I was raised evangelical, and there is a sense in that world that we we do want a kind of a harmony between the four Gospels. We, we don't want any real contradictions, but the actual project of harmonizing the Gospels, now that goes way back, that, that was attempted and deemed heretical by the church, right? So can you tell us a little bit about why the church and how they decided, no, 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 we've got four different accounts, and that is how it ought to be. It's really kind of almost a mystery, because there were church fathers who were extremely sophisticated and recognized that there were discrepancies among the, the Gospels. And that's been the way that a lot of you know theologians have dealt with these kinds of things ever since then, is that of course, there are, you know, the, the, the Bible is not completely accurate, either scientifically or historically, but that's just part of God's will, and it's just basically designed to force you to think theologically. In fact, right. that's, kind of, that's kind of some of the stuff I've argued in my book, Biblical Truths, is that we shouldn't see these things as challenges to faith. We should see them as challenges to theological interpretation. As a Christian, you don't have to have an answer to the Big Bang Theory. That's right. ridiculous. You know, Christianity doesn't have to explain genetics. So you have written a lot, and I have benefited from it greatly, about your whole approach. This is something that academics have to do when they, when they write their big books. They have to explain, I'm using critical theory. I'm using post-structural theory. It's the kind of thing that popular writers get to avoid doing and, and podcast hosts. We never have to claim our schools of thought. But in the academy, you do so that people can, you know, oh, I real okay, well, I disagree with that approach. So this is why I'm going to disagree with you. We don't have time to go into a lot of this. But what of your approach, your way of reading the Bible, your way of thinking theologically about Scripture, do we need to know before we go through the Gospels one by one? Well, the first thing is you just need to know that when human beings speak language, truth doesn't mean the same thing in all different kinds of language. So, for example, you can say a Christian theological truth about God creating the world without deciding that you have to have an a separate answer for the Big Bang Theory. You don't have to ascribe to the Big Bang Theory. You just say, okay, the Big Bang Theory is currently theoretical physicists' theory about the origin of the cosmos. But you don't have to either disagree or agree with it. To I, say God I, created the universe is not to say God did the Big Bang. Those are not the same big, statements. Or that the, the Big Bang was the way it happened. Right. Uh, you don't have to say that we have to deny evolution uh, in order to say that, you know, God created us. Right. Different truths are true in different ways. One of the examples I say is that if I say to someone, I love you, you can't test that as truth hmm. by science or history. Either the person believes it or they don't believe it. It doesn't mean it's not true, but you can't test it as true in certain systems. 
the way you test my statement, I love you, is by seeing if I act in a loving way toward you. Right. That's the only test. I mean, you can't put it into a chemical solution. So what it means to say that a statement is true varies, and this is when you get into the theory and the philosophy, to say say it varies according to what discourse of truth you're dealing with. Science is a discourse. History is a discourse. Theology is a discourse. Personal feelings are discourses. Right. What I mean by discourse is simply a way of speaking. Language is only true within a way of speaking. Yeah, you have this phrase in Biblical Truths, your book, that you use throughout the book. This is true in a sense, and it is false in a sense. It is it is both true and false. In this sense, it's true, and in this sense, it's pretty obviously false. And that doesn't in fact, negate I, the whole I thing. I wanted to call that – I wanted the title of the back, that book to be In a Sense. Yeah, that would have worked. But that's really going to be important here because – it's a nice lens through to look at the four gospel accounts. This is why I wanted to talk to you about this topic is that there are ways in which clearly we cannot affirm everything that all four gospels say in the same way because that would be logically contradictory. But we can affirm what they say in a sense and not in another sense. Is that – am I getting it right? Exactly right. Just to give an example – The Gospel of Matthew portrays Jesus as a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, who is actually even more loyal to the law of Moses, according to the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, than the Pharisees are. So Jesus is not Pharisee in the Gospel of Matthew. But he's constantly telling people, here's the right way to obey this Mosaic law. And he says he's not at all trying to get rid of the Mosaic law. In fact, the writer of Matthew is trying to make Jesus more Jewish than the Pharisees. He's the real Jew. He's, he's like the best interpreter of Moses who exists. Yeah. The, the Gospel of John is very, very different. In fact, when you just go through John and see who are the Jews, Jesus and his disciples are not called Jews. Hmm. The Jews are somebody else. He's making a language distinction between Jesus and his disciples and some other group, which are Jews, of which they're not a part. Surely the gospel, the writer of the Gospel of John knew that Jesus was a Jew right. in the sense of our terms. But then why does he always talk about the Jews as others in the Gospel of John? Yeah, and that so, has its own problematic uh, reverberations throughout history. Exactly. In Germany and so, elsewhere. For Matthew, Jesus is almost a hyper-Jew. And yet Matthew portrays the Jews as bloodthirsty Jesus killers. So how can Ma- the Gospel of Matthew, in my view, be the most Jewish of the Gospels hmm. and yet the most anti-Jewish of the Gospels? Well, But that's, a, yeah. that's exactly what it looks like hmm. on a okay. reading. Now, we're going to go through each of the four Gospels together, and then we're going to have some follow-up questions. Where should we start and why this order? Historically, what I've done is start with Mark because I think it's quite clear that Mark is the earliest gospel Yeah, written around the year 70. And then Matthew and Luke both used Mark as a source for their gospels. And so we just say, let's put them in the 80s somewhere so that you have a chance for the gospel of Mark to be copied and copied and circulated and circulated so that some guy that we're now calling Matthew and some guy we're now calling Mark, and we don't believe that 
either of these names are actually the authors of these Gospels, but let's just call them that for convenience. They have to discover the Gospel of Mark and use it as one of their sources because there's right. a there's verbal copying from Mark in both Matthew and Luke. And then uh, the Gospel of John seems to be later, and most of us say it's later just because author of the Gospel of John may know some of the other Gospels, also because the Gospel of John has a much more developed theological position. His Christology, that is his theology of Christ, is something that most of us believed took time to develop in the early Jesus movement. I'm going to ask you the same questions about each of these Gospels, and you know, we'll try and spend about five, ten minutes on each and so that we have time to get to some of this other stuff. But starting with Mark, what is most distinctive about the Gospel of Mark? Well, one thing is Jesus is a superman. What do you mean by uh, that? Miracle worker, yeah, powerful, impressive, wows people. Mark tries to make a point that Jesus is a great teacher. In fact, he explicitly says, everybody said, oh, God, this guy is a great teacher. But Jesus is a lousy teacher in the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> His chops don't get going until Matthew. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus tells parables, and Mark is explicit about this. Mark says Jesus tells parables so that people won't understand him. Right, I remember that, yeah. And so he never explains his parables, and when he does try to explain his parables, he only does so to his inside disciples, inside a house, not out on a mountain or outside to all the people. Right. And his explanation of his parables don't fit the parables. So if you've ever read Mark and you're and you're going along, you're like, uh, this doesn't make seem to make sense. You're not alone in thinking that. No, in fact, uh, the reason that most Christians don't see these problems in Mark is because they only read Mark after they've read Matthew. Right. Yep. That makes sense. And he's a teacher who even misleads his disciples. So if you read through the Gospel of Mark, it's no wonder that over and over again in Mark, the author makes the point that the disciples didn't understand him. The other thing is that. Uh, we were talking about whether God, whether Jesus is God or not. This is a big problem for Mark because the very first verses of Mark called Jesus the Son of God. But scholars are, are disagreed about whether that those verses were, were originally part of the gospel or were added by later scribes. Yeah, The only person at his death who says, surely – in fact, this was John Wayne's line in The Greatest Story Ever Told, one of those movies – surely this was the Son of God. Um, so you imagine it being said by John Wayne. Yeah, exactly. But the Greek could be translated simply as a son of God, not the mm. son of God. It's ambiguous. And since it's said by a Roman, you know, a Roman could call anybody a son of God. So the only two times when you have Jesus divinity really explicit is it's as a son of God, not as God. And it's at the very beginning of the gospel and the end of the gospel. And it's said by the author possibly at the beginning of the gospel, and a Roman centurion at the end of the gospel. This is totally ambiguous. It's almost like how could the gospel of Mark have been sufficient on its own for Christians? Which is exactly what Matthew and Luke thought. Ah, makes sense. They thought it's not sufficient. Yeah. Okay, so taking this picture we get from Mark, you have this thing of, you know, it's both true and false, depending on the sense you mean. So can we start with, in what sense is Mark's picture of Jesus false, do you think? Well, it's certainly false from a Christian Orthodox position, in that even if you believe that the author of Mark accepts the divinity of Jesus in some sense, he certainly doesn't have any doctrine of the Trinity. 
Right. And the full equality of Jesus to the Father. So we might call it either false or at best insufficient theologically. Exactly. And this is one thing that, you know, you just have to teach people is that you've got to get over the modern idea that divinity or non-divinity is a black and white issue. Hmm. In the ancient world, there are tons of divinities. The Greek term we use for this is theos aner, which is two Greek words which mean divine and human. And there are all kinds of divine humans in the ancient world. Hercules, you know, Odysseus, Asclepius, Julius Caesar, Augustus. There are tons of people in the ancient world who are a combination of divinity and humanity. So simply Jesus being this kind of weird, enigmatic, powerful figure in that context that does not get you to the Trinity. Absolutely not. Now, but in what sense is this picture of Jesus true? I think it's true because Jesus and Mark is a hidden figure, and God is a hidden figure. We can learn about the puzzlement that is God, the hiddenness that is God, by seeing the hiddenness of the divinity of Jesus and Mark. Yeah. God does not answer our questions in direct ways. If we believe that God answers our questions at all, and many of us maybe don't, but we cannot flip into the fundamentalist uh, God said. God didn't say. Hmm. And the, the Jesus of the Gospel of Mark, if we accept that Jesus as divine in some sense, is a way to remind us that we don't have God on a platter. That's one of the ways that I would say we can use, we can use the Gospel of Mark to preach with. Right. And that's a that's an idea that gets picked up big time in Karl Barth, among other theologians. That... Oh, oh, absolutely. Karl Barth is a, is a great theologian of, you know, apophatic theology, or yeah. what, what we... we call negative theology. Yeah, the what... idea that, you know, anything you say about God is false. Right. Yeah. And in fact, I did a, a patron-only episode with my buddy Jack talking about just this uh, hiddenness of God. And for those of you who support the Patreon, you you have access to that episode. So if that's Mark, we've got Matthew and Luke who have Mark and are wanting to make some corrections. You want to start with either of them in particular? Well, I already talked about Matthew a bit. So let me just say that Matthew, Jesus is much more of a, a teacher who says what he means. Hmm. And it's all almost always interpretation of some kind of aspect of the Mosaic Law. Or at yeah, least, he, he's going back to the Torah a lot. Yes. A lot of people think that the Sermon on the Mount represents Jesus as dispensing with the Mosaic Law and creating a new law. So this is the new gospel. Yeah. But but And they're, they're, they usually base that on an anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish reading that says that the Jews are strict and harsh. And so when they say an eye for an eye, in a tooth for a tooth. Jesus rejects that and says, no, it's a much more merciful thing. But that's not really a very good reading of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. He says, anybody who's even lusted after your neighbor's wife or whatever has already committed adultery with her. And so it's actually making the Mosaic law harder to keep. Right, yeah. Jesus says, you have heard it said, in the Mosaic Law, he's quoting, do not kill. Jesus doesn't follow up by that. That was saying, no, kill whoever you want to. He follows it up by saying, do not hate. Even if you hate someone, you've killed him. The Gospel of Matthew is basically teaching us, you Gentiles who consider yourselves Christians and therefore members of the house of Israel in some sense, you have to recognize the fact that 
you are followers of a Jewish God. You venerate a Jew. So Matthew is situating Jesus more firmly in his Jewish context. Yes. And even in the tradition of Jewish leaders, like prophets and others who would sort of like rediscover the text, right, and kind of reapply it to a new day. Jesus is a Jewish teacher in the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. But then he also raises the the Christology from Mark, right? So he's got more of the idea of Jesus is getting closer or is God part of the Trinity. What's that like in Matthew? That's hard to say because Jesus never equates himself to God, the Father, in the Gospel of Matthew, as he does later in the Gospel of John. But then you do have the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew, where the resurrected Jesus says to his disciples just before he is taken up into heaven, uh, go into all the world and baptize, preach the Gospel and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's actually one of the very, very few places you get in the whole Bible, where you have a hint at some kind of trinity. Yeah, interesting. You certainly don't have a doctrine of the trinity there, but you have baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I've argued that you don't get the trinity anywhere in the Bible. Yeah, you have to use the whole Bible and then combine it with the experience of the early church, and then you the bishops come to this idea of the trinity. Yes. So the Matthean Jesus... In what sense is that picture of Jesus false? Matthew gives the complete responsibility of the crucifixion of Jesus to the Jews, not to the Romans. Hmm. And in fact, then this is where the famous part comes about where Pilate says to the Jews, when Pilate's trying to release Jesus and the Jews in Jerusalem won't let him, and the Jews say, his blood be upon us and our children. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I'm and just, that's <laughs> I'm oh goshing because I know uh, what that little turn of phrase did over the, the ensuing two thousand years. Yeah, it's especially in the medieval period. This is this is the whole blood guilt of the Jews, and it comes right out of Matthew. Now, in what sense is Matthew's depiction of Jesus true? Well, I think that the reinterpretation of the Mosaic Law, so that it makes sense, as in some ways a tougher law to keep, but it's a tougher law than to use to condemn other people. If you say, you know, lusting after someone else is equivalent to adultery, well, who hasn't lusted after someone else? Right. And this is an in argument fact, that is, Paul makes in, in Romans 1 and 2, right? In Romans 1, he gives all this stuff, and then in Romans 2, he turns it around and says, so look, none of you – he puts so many things on the list that no one hasn't done some of those things, and no well, one can and judge remember, each other. Remember the Jimmy Carter Playboy interview? I don't remember. Was, I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> You're too young. Yeah. Uh, when he was running for president, Jimmy Carter was interviewed by Playboy. The interviewer said, "Have you ever committed adultery?" And Carter said, "Well, I've committed adultery in my heart." Hmm. And that was taken by leftists as being extremely stupid and, <laughs> you know, just ridiculous. And by the right wing as being, well, of course, we've all committed adultery in our hearts. Yeah, he knows the Gospel of Matthew. Exactly. He, he was basically just quoting the Gospel of Matthew. Right. But it was totally misunderstood by most journalists. But there's a sense in which that's a really beautiful thing to say. It's, it's a way of saying uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not going to judge people who have committed adultery. 
Well, that's exactly what he meant, and that's exactly the way a lot of you know people who know the Bible interpreted it. But the journalists went, went, went wild about it. They just thought it was ridiculous. I sort of skipped this question on Mark because I thought we covered it, but I, I want to ask it here in case there's something more. What should we take away from the Gospel of Matthew as Christians theologically? Well, I, I think I've tried to answer that a bit already by saying we should take away the idea that the interpretation of the law is not something we reject. Uh, we don't reject the law of Moses. Mm. We interpret it. Yeah, that's good. That's actually a really important point. Okay, so Matthew's stepbrother in the gospel accounts is Luke. Uh, Maybe. Because, well, yeah, no, not his real stepbrother. I mean, uh, ideological. They they have Mark. They're both kind of commenting on Mark. They use a lot of the same they, – they tell a lot of the same stories, and this is where we get some of the most direct – Divergence, right, is in the the Matthew and Luke accounts of the same events because right. they choose a lot of the same scenes from the life of Christ. When you're talking about Mark and then Matthew and Luke using Mark, we're talking direct quotation, right, of of the same fifteen Greek words in a row, or or something like that, yes. where it's just mathematically impossible that they would have just come up with that and not had access to this other. Yes, manuscript. in fact, I don't know any critical scholar who doesn't believe that there is a literary relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, yeah. by literary relationship, you mean that somebody's copying somebody else. Most of us believe that both Matthew and Luke had before them the Gospel of Mark and this document, this hypothetical document we're calling Q, which was mainly sayings of Jesus. Right. And that explains why you have word-for-word -word agreement in so many places between Matthew and Mark and Luke and Mark. And you have some word-for-word -word agreement between Matthew and Luke, but not necessarily when they overlap with Mark. And, it, and, and it's like if you think about the life of Jesus, whether his ministry was one year long or three years long, which is something we could, we could talk about in terms of discrepancies or divergence, that's a lot of days. That's a lot of speeches, right? That's a lot of healings. And it would just be very unlikely that Matthew and Luke would – just choose all the same ones, right? There's just yep, even if it's even if it's only one year, that's I mean, still you follow someone around for a year, you have to make a lot of editorial choices to get that into you know a twenty page book. Okay, so let's get into Luke now. My my thinking about Luke from especially reading I did in college when I was like my most politically liberal and my most worried about accumulated wealth and the poor. Uh, in, yes. in a kind of a surface way, I was reading Luke all the time because – Well, that you're exactly right. That's a major theme of Luke that's not in the other Gospels. Yeah. Jesus doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus says blessed are the poor, full stop. Exactly. So let's, exactly. let's use my uh, – let's use that as an entree into what, what do you have to say about what's Luke doing with Jesus? Well, for one thing, you start at, let's start at the beginning. So the birth narratives in Luke have two really interesting themes that will recur throughout the rest of the gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles. One of those is the use of birth narratives of the emperors to depict the birth of Jesus. Right. So a bright, a bright light appears in the sky. The shepherds all come to worship Jesus. The angels talk about Jesus in the way that a person would talk about the birth of Augustus. And in fact, he just – he starts the gospel. The very first four verses are, Dear Theophilus, 
I'm writing to you because I've researched this and I've got all these data and I've looked at other sources. And that is exactly the way you would start a biography yeah, of a great interesting. man. Yeah. And you can look at rhetorical handbooks of the time and they'll tell you, how do you write a biography of a great man? Well, you tell about miracles that happen at his birth. You tear about his, the genealogy of his family and how great it is. You talk about how he grew and grew in strength and power and in wisdom. You plan a little story about how he's a young man. He astonishes everybody by his wisdom. And you say plant because that's not in any other gospel, him at 12 years old at the temple, right? Yeah, it's only in Luke. And Matthew has birth narratives also, but notice how Matthew's birth narratives looked like the birth narratives of Moses and Joseph. Right. Herod killing all the kids yes, is exactly. like Pharaoh and the firstborn. They, Pharaoh, flee to, they flee to they Egypt, flee to Egypt. Matthew. They don't anywhere else. Right. Exactly. That's right. But um, if, you, if you just take the birth narratives of Luke and the genealogy of Jesus and Luke and the childhood of Jesus and Luke, it, and then you just look at a, a chapter, a rhetorical handbook of the first or second century, and it, Luke is following step by step. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, it's sort of like a, it's like if you watch someone's sales pitch and then you sit down with the text of how to win friends and influence people and you start That's exactly, going – Yeah. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. But the other thing you see, that's the other theme that you see at the birth narratives of Luke that's not in a birth narrative of, of Augustus is the Magnificat, Mary's song when she's told that she's pregnant. And she's going right. to be pregnant with Jesus. And she, the, the, you know, blessed art thou amongst women. For the, best of the And then she says, my soul blesses the Lord. My, and, and then look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. I think that's right. Look at Hannah's song. Hmm. When she's told that she's going to give birth to Samuel, they're almost identical. So Luke has fashioned the birth of Jesus to imitate the birth of great prophets in the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Interesting. And in, in both of them, the main theme is God overturns the top and the bottom. So this is where we get the idea of the upside-down kingdom of heaven, which is a phrase yes, that God, a lot of— God yeah. takes down the powerful and the rich, and he raises up the poor. And so what you were seeing when you were in college is exactly right. That's Luke all the way through. And it's not necessarily in the other Gospels. It's a bit in Paul— you know, First Corinthians, Paul chose the, you know, the the nothings in the world to shame the rich. Yeah. So Luke is doing two different things in the birth narratives, but they will express themselves about Jesus' identity throughout the rest of his gospel. One is that it's a biography, but it's a biography of a an emperor. The other thing is it's a biography of a revolutionary emperor who's going to completely overturn the structures of society. Okay, so in what sense is Luke's Jesus false, his portrayal of Jesus? Well, from a Christian Orthodox point of view, Luke's Jesus, his death does not function at all, at all as an atonement for sins. Interesting. What I'm does not it function sure as? Can, uh, the death of a prophet who suffers a noble death for being a true representative of God. Uh, when people really follow God, they end up being killed kind of a thing. Exactly. Interesting. And by the doctrine of the atonement, I simply mean that the death of Jesus serves as a sacrifice for sins. And that's definitely in Mark. It's definitely in Matthew. It's definitely in Paul. But the only place in the Gospel of Luke where you find any indication of that at all is in the scene in the garden 
where Jesus prays to God and it says that he sweats his sweat is like great drops of blood yeah and and then an angel is sent to comfort him there are two verses there and that clearly is a reference to his death his upcoming death as being an atonement a suffering atonement and almost all scholars believe that those two verses were not originally in Luke oh interesting they were put there later they were put there later by christian scribes who knew that Jesus in Luke is too calm. Hmm. In Luke, Jesus engineers his own death, hmm. which you don't find in Matthew or Mark. That's interesting. And it's because scribes didn't find Luke's Jesus orthodox enough. So what about how Luke portrays Jesus is true that we should take from it? Well, I definitely love the part about the, the rich will be brought low and the poor will be raised up the revolutionary Jesus. I think that's wonderful. I think Jesus in Luke comes across as much more compassionate than Jesus comes across in either Mark or Matthew. Hmm. I mean, you don't have all kinds of stuff in the other gospels that you have in Luke that are wonderful, like the parable of the prodigal son. Oh, wow, yeah. That's only in Luke. How valuable is that? Okay, now it's time to hear from my buddy Kenny Hogan about his particular concerns, mostly regarding the Gospel John. Here is my short chat with Kenny. Can you briefly describe the faith that you were raised in? Yeah, um, I grew up in a in a four square church, so I would call that conservative, charismatic Christian. Not furthest conservative because they have women pastors, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Like right. I think it would it would fit the definition of evangelical, but we did, I didn't hear that word much in the church. Right. Yeah. And how would you describe your faith today? How is it different than what you were brought up in? I've moved significantly left of that. I still would identify myself as Christian. You could maybe call me a liberal progressive Christian or, you know, the definition that I maybe want to reach for is Christian mystic where I feel like that would maybe best characterize my belief structure, but maybe I'm just not fully there yet in practice. So in terms of, I understand what you're saying, the difference between you, you don't want to call yourself a mystic if you're not spending a lot of time in a mystic experience, mystical experience. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's like calling yourself an author before you've written a book. But you, in terms of your belief structure, how would you describe that? So. It makes me think of something like the type of experiences that people have of God directly, those are real and those ought to be valued very highly. Uh, and maybe, as Richard Rohr says, more highly than our interpretations of the text. Is it something like that? Yeah, that's an interesting to say, like, could our experiences with God or with the divine, is that more important than the text? Um, I think I'm just at the point in my life where I'm finally able to see that it can be at least as important as the text. And that's new. Where, and that's new, yeah. And, and I've been wrestling with, with the Bible so much that there are days where I don't even know what I think the text is, you know. There are days where I can, I can hold the mystery and it's all beautiful. And then there are days where 
you know, probably the most accurate description of my faith is agnostic, where, you know, like I'm just sitting in the doubt. And on the days where I embrace the mystery, the doubt doesn't bother me, you know, when I don't have that need for certainty. I still have these these neural networks, you know, from from a whole history of, of, of my faith upbringing that I sometimes loop back into. Well, so that's exactly uh, why I wanted to talk to you. So this interplay of kind of the way you think of it now versus the way you thought of it or were taught to think of it then is the thing that you're struggling with with the gospel accounts. Now, a more basic question that people might have and that we'll get to with Dale about the four gospels is how come they can have any disagreements at all? I, it's a problem for me that they conflict in any way. That's not what you're saying, right? No, no, it's not. Um, y- you know, I-, I was probably brought up to think that they don't conflict, you know, that they all right. just complement each other and it's a unified message. As I started to take apart my faith and, and, and look at it and search for truth, um, I, I let go of, of the idea of inerrancy somewhere in there. And so, you know, now I kind of look at the Bible as this beautiful collection of, of writings where, you know, it's all different humans and different places writing to different people, just wrestling with who are we, who is God and what's the dynamic between us. Um, and so I, it doesn't bother me that, that, there are four different gospels um, written by four different people for four different audiences. It's it's more like I think the the Jesus I was brought up brought up on was kind of distinctly colored by an interpretation of John's gospel. Yeah. Um, so maybe something worth saying here is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, you know, there are differences, and, and Dale will talk about this, but they're a bit closer to each other in terms yeah. of. They, they seem to be a bit closer to the historical Jesus of Nazareth. And then you have the Gospel of John, which is a more theological gospel. It's believed to be the last written. And the author of John gives Jesus these like soliloquies, these long mm-hmm. metaphysical speeches about how he and the Father are all this, you know, all this stuff that is nowhere in the other three gospels. And, you know, maybe it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that, that he would say if we think the other. Uh, gospel accounts are accurate for Jesus of Nazareth, the person. And so that's kind of the basic tension there between those two types of gospels. And, and, and so what's the problem for you as you see it today? Yeah. What I, what I scratch my head about is the, the divinity of Jesus and, and how, and how you define that. I've, I've heard like beautiful descriptions of John's gospel, but when I pick it up to read it, I, st- I still kind of snap back into that original understanding. The primary purpose and like the core identity of Jesus and his mission on the earth is to, you know, save us from hellfire, give us, uh, give us a new path that, that leads s- straight to heaven, right? With less of the focus on the daily life of living in the kingdom, whereas you, you know, in the Synoptic Gospels, you see Jesus talking about the kingdom all the time. Yeah, and, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Yeah, right. The, and that it, it's basically in the Synoptic Gospels, you have these three different ways 
of, of seeing Jesus talking about a new way to live as human beings, right? And that uh, you can live into the kingdom now. And I think there is a way to read John's gospel where you lose a bit of a bit of that if you're kind of focusing uh, mostly on Jesus' proclamation of his uh, of his divinity. Yeah, interesting. When I read John by myself, I go, "Oh, yeah, this is different than the other ones. Like this is less historical. He's putting words in Jesus's mouth." And I have this kind of I can't help but make that move, which is a little different than the you're talking about. You're saying there's almost like a traumatic reading of John that you were raised with that you can't get away from. Am, am I, am I hearing you right? Yeah, I think so. And I've kind of avoided it because of that, you know, as, as my faith started to change and move, I just really spent time reading the synoptic gospels um, because that was how Jesus came alive to me hmm. anew is that I, and, and it's not like we only read John in my, in my church growing up. Like we read all of the gospels, but it's, I feel like in the synoptics we were, we were reading the miracles and kind of like proclaiming how, how incredible Jesus was performing these miracles. And I didn't, I lost the message of, of this like powerful, subversive, like upside down way of being in the world. Yeah. And so since then, I just kind of don't know what to do with John. Like I know that there are, there are other readings of it, I just kind of haven't settled into them yet. Yeah, that's interesting. And and when we were talking before, you mentioned, for instance, Richard Rohr and, and people in this more contemplative mystical tradition, they point to John, right? I, yes, I interviewed Keith time. Ward yeah. the other day, and, and a big part of his interview was talking about John 1-1, the Logos, right? The Logos, the Cosmic Christ, which some people can mean Cosmic Christ in a kind of a way that, that uh, negates the synoptic Jesus, but you can also mean Cosmic Christ as like, this is the Trinitarian understanding of, of the Logos coming to live in the person Jesus of Nazareth, and you get most of that in John. Yes, and, that, and I can listen to Richard Rohr talk about the cosmic Christ, and it blows my mind and opens up my heart and like fills me with, with God. You know, it, it's, but when I, pick, when I pick it up myself and I read it, somehow I'm just like snapped right back in into mm. that brain space of that earlier understanding I had of Jesus. So if you could describe what the solution to this would be or, or what would the state of affairs be if this were solved for you, how would you describe that? What, do you, what would you hope to see change for yourself? I think this is a moment in my faith journey. And I think as I spend more time in contemplative practices that kind of the tension of my anxiety is probably going to lift and that I'll be able to do like a Lectio Divina kind of reading of John and it will probably be beautiful, you know? Yeah. And I just realized I'm just not there yet, but um, I'm not throwing it out. You know? I'm going to interview Dale Martin who taught New Testament at Yale for, I don't know, decades do you have any questions you'd like me to ask him on your behalf about this oh. issue? Oh, yeah. I'd be really curious to know, like, what did the authors of the synoptics and the early Christians at the time think of the divinity of Jesus? Like, did they have a conception of it? That Did John introduce that? Or did, like, later Christian doctrine come around John and build it? Good question. 
Anything else you can think of? I would love to know what he would point to in John of like the human Jesus. Cause I know, like, I know that John is not just saying that Jesus yeah. is, is God in a human skin. And he's like, you know, right. Play, playing shapeshifter on us all. Yeah. Like it's probably there under my nose. Yeah. Like just like the kingdom talk was right under your nose in the synoptics when you were growing exactly, up. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's good. And I have one on your behalf that I will ask him, but I'll tell it to you now. What is there in John in either the text or the authorial intention of the writer of John in the way that he positions Jesus that would subvert the very uh, sort of violent reading of the text that you were raised with? Uh, I, I mean, violent, doing violence to the text, not <laughs> about violence, of like the whole point of Jesus is just He's God, he does these big miracles, and then he dies for our sins, and that's the whole thing. This sort of – it is kind of the negation of his human life and the negation of his uh, earthly ministry, right? So what is there in John that actually gives us a clue that like – or that subverts that reading of John that you were raised with? That's – I'll ask you that question. That's a great – I love that question. When I talk about this reading of Jesus I grew up with – I should be clear, like, this is what I internalized from my experience sure, sure. in that faith tradition. What was being preached may have been more nuanced, and that's just what I took from it. Of course. You are um, you were young. Yeah. 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 I, I have questions all the time about, like, what did I misunderstand, and, and how many better sermons went over my head in yeah. my childhood? Yeah. Well, uh, Kenny, thank you so much for your time, man. This is great. Yeah. You're welcome. For the second of the two patron-only episodes this month in April, I spoke with William Lloyd. William is a listener of the show and himself a patron. And when he emailed me and we started chatting, I found so much about his story and his current work interesting that I wanted to interview him. What is especially interesting to me is the fact that he works with a program that uses the Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step type structure combined with Christian theology and biblical teaching And I have long thought that there was something really unique about the 12-step process and the kind of open God-slash-higher-power language that's used, this lack of judgment baked into the very structure of the meetings, all that stuff. So we chatted about that and about his own story of heartbreak and recovery, of deconstruction and reconstruction. Here are some clips of my conversation with William. You mean to tell me that Adam... Adam just totally upended the human race and put us in this this hole and destroyed the human race. And Jesus could only undo a little bit of that. Jesus could only get a few. I, I was like, you know, shit, Adam is so much more powerful than Jesus, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it, you know, and yeah. like the answer kind of was kind of flat. You know, a lot of the addicts, they, you know, some of them – I mean, it, it it hits everybody, but a lot of them, it, it was the, the legalism um, that really killed them and really drove them away. And my marriage and the counselor told me that you're in, a, you're in an abusive relationship. And I kind of said, that that can't happen. I'm a man. Yeah. Women can't be abusive to a man. <laughs> you yeah, know, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. And uh, so I was just um, very um, dysfunctional. I was codependent. Um, 
I was I was definitely sexually dysfunctional, you know, as far as just feeling guilty about my desires and, and having an unwilling partner. And he said, make a chart. Your resentment, who you're resenting, why, your part in it, and God's view. So I said, I said, you know, Billy, his name was Billy. I said, you know, I said, I, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I'm a nice guy. You know, I don't hate anybody. You know, I, well, d- skip that part. <laughs> he, says, <laughs> he says, you know, he says, uh, no, he goes, I'll fire you. That's a term that they use in AA. That if hmm. you don't go along and, and really kind of listen to the wisdom of your sponsor, you're fired. You know, I love you, but I'm, I'm not your sponsor. <laughs> he goes, I'll fire you. I said, I don't. He goes, listen. He goes, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and lead you and do it. And I'll be honest, Dan, five pages later of listing and working out my resentments blew me away. And I brought it to him. And, and step five is that you, you know, you confess the exact nature of your wrongs. I read the list to him and I felt such a weight come off my shoulders. I did not realize all the things that I had stuffed and all the, uh, the emotions If that sounded interesting to you or to hear all the other patron-only episodes, head to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Starts at five bucks a month. It helps me a lot. It pays for my time making this show. And uh, you get the bonus episodes. You get the Facebook group. You get to ask me questions that I answer on the air and help me write questions for our guests It's worth it. The Facebook community is really kind of flowering. It's awesome. Now, back to my chat with Dale, where we will talk about John and respond to Kenny's particular questions. So now we come to John, and we almost could have done a whole episode, I'm sure we could have, just on John, because it it is so distinctive. It's almost like an evangelical tract (laughs) in gospel form. What? And that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. Okay, well, well, so what do you mean by that? Why is that a problem? Uh, because people have too often read the Jesus of the other Gospels only through the lens of Paul and John. Yeah. And, and then you just, you just miss out on too much. You know, one of my themes for my biblical truths book is that for whatever re- it was the Holy Spirit, it was a miracle. I don't know why the canon was developed to have four Gospels that, admittedly, I don't think people in the pre-modern era read them the way we in the modern era read them, which is to really separate them out. But this is, if you go, you know, to Princeton Theological Seminary and you take your classes in, you know, the Gospels, they're going to teach you, do not read the Jesus of Matthew through the lens of John or Luke or Mark. Read the Jesus of Matthew, the Jesus of Matthew. That actually provides a theological richness. Right, which, which we've been picking up on based on how you've been yeah. walking us through this. And you, yeah. you, miss out, you miss out on if you, don't, if you don't let them, let Jesus come out of these different Gospels in very different ways. And if you're being purely historical, it is very strange that why did the people who made up the canon decide to include four different Gospels rather than just choose one? That's a very interesting question. I, I don't know that I've ever tried to answer that so directly. I don't think there is an answer to it. For one thing, there was never a council, at least not in the ancient world. It's not the same as the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or something? No. The Nicene Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, 
the Creed of uh, Alexandria or Athanasius, whatever you want to call these, they never uh, defined the canon completely. It's more organic and it took centuries to develop, which is why we have some canon lists from the first few centuries that don't have all four of our Gospels or that some of them have all four of the Gospels, but they have them in totally different orders. Right. It just shows that, you know, this kind of developed with just a bunch of scribes and monks sitting around developing lists or bishops here and there developing lists, a few bishops, not a whole lot, but never as a unified church decision. But I choose as a Christian theologian to take it as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. What do you mean by that? I think a lot of people listening to you – just, just you know, you're being a critical scholar, and you're you're saying these things maybe didn't happen, and whatever. And they would go, "Well, he's not going to believe in miracles. So why do you say it's a miracle of the Holy Spirit?" Well, of course, I believe in miracles. It's just what do you think a miracle is? Right. I define miracle in the ancient sense, which is simply something completely wonderful and apparently inexplicable, and from God, um, and from God. Uh, okay. Only in the modern world does the term miracle have to come to mean a contravention of the laws of nature. Right. We talked about this on the depolarized episode that like the natural supernatural distinction is only since the Enlightenment. They didn't have that yes. distinction when these people were writing. Yes, exactly. One of my friends says that you don't have to believe that God punches a hole in the universe. God doesn't punch a hole in the universe. God made the universe. So let's dive into John here, and we'll forgive ourselves if we spend a bit a bit more time on it than the other ones because it is so distinct. So what do we need to know about the Gospel of John as compared to the, the three synoptic Gospels? I guess you start with the prologue, the first 18 verses. Yeah, the Logos, the Word. You know, and Logos means not only Word of God, it means discourse of God, it means rationality of the universe. Yeah, blueprint, um, I've heard. Well, one of the things I've used is software. Jesus is the software of the universe, is what the prologue says. Wow. In our terms. Interesting. He's not the hardware. We know that, because that would be a heresy. Hmm. But he's the way everything works. That's really interesting. You know, one of the things that your conversation with Kenny seemed to emphasize that I would have disagreed with a bit is it, it sounded like what Kenny was saying was that the evangelicalism emphasis on the death of Jesus as central and saving, that is the atonement of Jesus' death, is something that's filtered from John through the other Gospels. That's not entirely accurate. So Jesus' death is not an atonement in the prologue. Hmm. And it's not an important theme for any of the Gospel. It's in, there. In John. In John. Yeah. It, it's there in a few places, but but not that's not the main reason for Jesus' death in Gospel of John. So what Kenny's discussing might more be from Paul than from the Gospel of John. Exactly. It's from Paul and from Mark. Interesting. Okay. That's helpful. But it, of course, it's still there in evangelicalism, and it's read into the Gospel of John a great deal. But if you just read the Gospel of John very strictly and carefully, you can only mark out about maybe four or five places in the whole Gospel of John where the death is like for the world. Yeah. For the salvation of the world. Well, John 3.16 um, is one of those, right? For God no. so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But where does it talk about the death? <laughs> oh, okay. You got me. You got me there. Right. 
the main theme about the nature of Jesus in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is God. And you have to believe in who Jesus is. It's the identity of Jesus. I see. I see. It's it, believing in and accepting the identity of Jesus. And in case it's and, not clear, like it's not like we're saying John 3.16 is like wrong. It's just if you want to interpret that as to include Christ's death and resurrection, then you have to do that through inter- interpreting it with other passages and other theological right, notions. Right. Yeah, and it, right. and, that's, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But right. So John chapter 10, Jesus compares himself to the shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. But that's kind of generic. Yeah, it's, it's self-sacrifice in, in sort of a broad sense. Yeah. Uh, in John 11, Jesus dies for the nations and for all people. In John 15, he says he lays down his life for his friends. But this is kind of something that he's saying anybody should be willing to do. Yeah, that's the one – that's greater love. That's, that's basically the highest ethical action one can do is lay down one's life for one's friends. Exactly. So that's kind of a general ethic thing. Jesus' mission – in the Gospel of John, is to speak the truth to the world. He sure does a lot of speaking of the truth. Uh, and, it's, and he is the truth. So the most huh. important thing to learn from the Gospel of John about Jesus is that Jesus' identity is what's important. Hmm. And that you would make sense be- of the prologue, yeah. But you have, to, you have to accept his identity as the revealer to the world. But it's more like accepting his identity as the world revealer then it is a certain belief about his death. That's interesting. So that is maybe a way in which the evangelical uh, milieu that both Kenny and I grew up in and, and yourself as well, it took that language of accepting me. John is I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? This is all yeah. – so this is all Jesus as the way and you must accept Christ. But then yes. that's filtered through Paul and we get – but what you're accepting is not that Jesus reveals God. What you're accepting is that Jesus died for your sins. Yes, and that's not a big thing with the Gospel of John. Yeah, the Which main doesn't thing mean with it's Gospel not John, Christian theology. It's just not only right there in the Gospel of John. Exactly. So uh, the main picture of Jesus in the Gospel of John is as a source for true knowledge. That's interesting. And that's you don't really get that. That's so diametrically opposite to Matthew and Mark. Hmm. Especially Mark. Especially Mark, right. Yeah, Jesus is not a source for knowledge in Mark. He's a source for confusion. But then, of course, you get these passages in John, like chapter 6 or chapter 8, and they'll start off with Jesus starting these big, long dialogues with the Jews. And here again, we get that theme that he's not Jewish, it sounds like. And it even says at the beginning, the Jews who believed in him. And then he'll keep pushing them away, and he'll say – you don't really believe me. Your father is the devil. And they'll say, no, our father is Abraham. He says, no, your father is Satan. And then he says, that's why you want to murder me. And they say, we don't want to murder you. He says, yeah, you do, because your father's Satan. And the chapter ends with them trying to stone him to death. This is rough because I'm a Christian and I, I follow Jesus. And I just, if I'm honest with myself, I don't believe that Jesus that I worship ever said to his fellow Jews, that you are the spawn of Satan. I just have a hard time believing that. I don't think you should believe it. I'm just saying that's in the Gospel of John. Right. That's crazy. So the Gospel is – this is another way that John is super interesting compared to the others. The whole Gospel is a series of dialogues or monologues. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. These All these soliloquies and these kind of almost Socratic 
dialogue John stuff. Thir- John 13 through 17 is one speech. Oh, my gosh. And and it doesn't make any sense because at the end of one chapter, Jesus says, okay, let's stop. Let's go out to the garden. And it says they're going to go out. And then he stalk- talks for another three chapters. <laughs> okay. So this is kind of um, – we're going to dwell on John a little bit longer. And I'm going to weave Kenny's particular questions about John in here as well while we're talking about it. This is the big problem that a lot of people have with John, especially once they start doing a little bit of biblical studies and they realize that you've got the three synoptic gospels, which present a, what appears to be kind of more like a historical figure. And then you've got the Jesus of John, who is right, is giving four, all of a sudden is giving four chapter long speeches, and he's not doing that in any of the other gospels. And right. Paul doesn't seem to think that he did that. And so the first word that comes to my mind is embellishment. Is John or yep. the author of John embellishing the story? Is, is he lying about Jesus? Like, how do you think about that discrepancy? I don't like the word embellishment just because it assumes that he's got some kind of rock hard piece of evidence to start with. <laughs> maybe. OK, well, maybe. And he doesn't. He doesn't. So embellishment is too kind of a word. Yes. Wow. OK, well, let's hear what else you got to say about that. That's interesting. Uh, he's working within some kind of tradition. Uh, that's, I mean, I, I basically think you have to start off with New Testament studies with the idea that nobody in the New Testament had uh, rock-hard first-hand evidence of anything. Mm. Just because 40 uh, years is a long time. Well, even Paul, right. writing 20 years later. And Paul wasn't Paul, there, he, right? He, he wasn't there, no. And I don't think anybody was there that is writing in the New Testament. Some people find this to be very troubling, uh, this lack of evidence, um, but you don't, I assume. No, no, no problem. Why? <laughs> so the reason it would be the reason that it would be problematic for those people is uh, maybe some kind of an apologetics lens of like, look, Christianity makes a ton of sense. It's it's the rational choice, and look, this evidence is so strong, and it's an oral culture, and people wouldn't have forgot things, and the Holy Spirit would have made sure they didn't forget things. You know, it's you could go layer upon layer of this these kinds of arguments. And you're just like, nah, none of that matters and is important. Why do you think that doesn't matter? Well, even more so than that, I would say if you if that's the foundation of your faith, you're a heretic. Whoa. Why do you say that? Because your faith can't be based on historiography. Hmm. If you believe, you have to believe that you believe only because God, uh, through the Holy Spirit, gave you the gift of faith. Otherwise, you're basing your faith on something else besides grace. Hmm. Your faith can only be based on grace, and grace means gift of God. So if your faith is based on some rational person's account of history, you don't believe for the right reasons. Right. Okay, so with John, then, uh, it's okay that John is putting these speeches sort of in the mouth of Jesus. Would you say it's because he's saying true things about Jesus through having Jesus say things about himself that Jesus never said? Is that is that right? Well, again, if you interpret them truly, they're true. Yeah, they're true in a sense and false in a sense, right? Exactly. But you cannot put your faith in a Jesus who condemns the Jews. Right. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. Well, and it contradicts Paul. Right. Where, where does Paul it contradict believe- Paul? Well, Paul believes that, according to Romans 9 through 11, that the only reason for his ministry is to bring Gentiles into Israel. But if the Jews all stop being Jews, they're no longer Israel. 
Hmm. And that goes against God's plan. God's plan, according to Paul, is that the nations come to Jerusalem and worship the God of Israel. But God, the God of Israel has to remain the God of Israel. And maybe we could even say something smaller in scope just with this conversation, which is, as we heard in Matthew, we've got Jesus fulfilling the law, yes. not overturning it. And and exactly. how could the the Christ who fulfills the law tell the people who are currently following the law that you are the spawn of Satan? That does not make any sense. No. So you just have to figure out, okay, how do we accept – and this is my whole point about this whole conversation is that you have to take the four gospels as four different portraits of Jesus and then figure out how they're – good portraits, but also not neglect to think about how they're bad portraits. That's what it means to do theology. Right. You have to say, where is this false and where is it true? And I also think that if you emphasize the idea that you also get in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the only way to God, and you take that as evangelicals take it, that's wrong. So even that claim needs to be, we have to say it's true in some sense, it's false in some sense. Because... John three sixteen. God so loved the whole world. Yeah, Paul says God desires the salvation of all men. The end of Revelation has people from every tribe and tongue. Right, all that stuff. Yes. So even in the Gospel of John, you have this universal vision. Let me run through two of Kenny's questions really quick, and then we're going to do our our general treatment of the of the book as we've done with the other three. There's an idea that because. Christ is given these long speeches about I and the Father are one, you know, the, the, this exalted divinity of Jesus, this, this high Christology. Is that something new to John, or did, did later Christian doctrine come around John? Like, are Christians not believing that until 90s, or is that an earlier thing that just for some reason, maybe John thought the other Gospels didn't pick up on enough, but everyone had already believed it? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and— I think that's completely debatable. I don't think the most useful thing is to go back to the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think it's better to go to Paul. Okay, that makes sense. And say, what kind of divinity does Paul ascribe to Jesus? I think he definitely ascribes some kind of divinity. But like I said earlier, what it meant in the ancient world to call someone divine was very different from what it means in the modern world to call someone divine. Right. There's just a, a big gradation. There's all kinds of ways of being divine. And I have no doubt that Paul considered Jesus divine of some sort. But I think there are also indications that Paul may have thought that Jesus only became divine at his resurrection. Interesting. And that he was not and he was not fully God, but he was a son of God. Um which is why you don't have a full Trinitarian statement in Paul anywhere. You even have it much more in Colossians and Ephesians, which I think were not written by Paul, but by two different disciples of Paul. It talks about the fullness of divinity dwelling in Christ. You never get that language in Paul. That is the seven undisputed letters of Paul. But these, but Colossians and Ephesians are still written before the Gospel of John, right? I would think so, but we don't know. So it is possible that this kind of higher Christology, this Trinitarian thinking, this this full Trinity is is developing and maybe reaches its sort of um, clearest sense at that point 
around or just before uh, the Gospel of John and after the other Gospels? That's possible? I don't even think you get the Trinity in John. I don't think you get that until way later in the second century. In terms of the Holy Spirit? Yes, and, and, and the fullness of deity in Jesus. You can be a son of God without being the fullness of God. I mean, when you said that Julius Caesar is God, are you equating him with Zeus? And then if you're someone like a philosopher of the time, even Zeus is a junior god. Zeus is not the god who's the highest deity of the universe. Zeus is like a baby god. So you have to have enough time for the development, even in philosophy. Uh, so when Plato talks about the demiurge, that's not the highest god for Plato. That's still a junior god. So when, when John talks about Jesus being the logos through whom the universe is created, that sounds like Plato's demiurge. But that's not, even for Plato, the highest deity. Right. Or when Paul seems to talk about things like Jesus is the first resurrection that of, that, of which we will all share in. It's sort of hard to – you can do it, but that's not immediately clear that Jesus is like f- full par with God the Father. Not at all. In fact, people were being resurrected all around. I mean, resurrection was as common as Walmart in the ancient world. That seems like that has to be an overstatement. <laughs> well, I can point you to a book <laughs> that was just recently published by a guy who – catalogs and he has lists of all the different afterlife visions of people that you can find in the greco-roman world there are i don't know maybe not hundreds of them but scores of them and so then what do we make of this i mean this really gets to a, a kind of a core concern of people who study the new testament and early development of church doctrine does it matter this is really the question in my mind does it matter if every Christian, starting with Mary Magdalene and going up through the Council of Nicaea in 325 or whenever that was, does it matter that they all agreed on their doctrine or is it fine that it developed? And that's just what happened is that God led the church in a process of clarification of God's self-revelation to his people. If you think you have to believe the former, you've either st- have to stop being a Christian, or you have to stop being a person who believes in science and history. You know, even the Gospels say that Mary Magdalene didn't recognize Jesus at his resurrection. Well, so then what, briefly speak to what you think this anxiety is when a, when a more conservative Christian, and I, I have felt this many times, it's, it's worrisome to think that it took a hundred years and that the Gospels and the, and the letters of the New Testament are a record of that time, a, a record of Christians figuring that out. Like, why did that make me uncomfortable when I first thought of that? Because you're a modernist and ah. you don't you don't have a healthy enough doctrine of the Holy Spirit and providence. Hmm. You don't you don't believe enough that God's in control. God is in control. Yeah. And God was in control the first 400, 500 years of Christianity, just like God is in control now. But modern people don't believe God's control. Hmm. And that's the problem with evangelicalism. They don't believe in God. (laughs) Not a robust enough God, anyway. Exactly. They believe in some kind of 17th, 18th century notion of God. Okay, well, that's a rabbit trail that uh, we could spend the whole day on. So let's, let's pull up and let's do John. 
so we've been talking about John, and let's do our application here. In what sense is the picture of Jesus in the Gospel of John false? Uh, the anti-Jewish stuff. Yeah. I might say this is kind of something that just occurred to me, but maybe it might be true in some sense. I think Jesus talks too much in the Gospel of John. Interesting. He should do more and talk less. <laughs> it's just funny to hear someone say that so directly. It's not Jesus. It's John's literary depiction of Jesus, right, that we're talking about. But that's about. what we're talking That's what yeah. we're talking about all the time here. Exactly. I mean, we're always talking about Mark's Jesus or Matthew's Jesus or Luke's Jesus or John's Jesus or Paul's Jesus or the book of Revelation's Jesus. We're always talking about a Jesus. It's so hard to keep that in mind, though, as a modern person. Like I, we, I just always want to say, oh, I'm talking about the guy himself, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the human being. Well, even the, even the guy himself is by scholarly standards the historical Jesus. Which is another – yeah, exactly. Which, there, is an, which is another construct. Right, I know. That's what I keep saying. I know, you're I keep right. saying the historical Jesus is a construction. Right. No, that's true. The fact is Jesus didn't write anything. And even if he had written something, people write things today. And that just because you can read their book or their sayings does not mean you have full access to their person. So with John – there's probably more than one thing, of course, but in what sense is the John's version of Christ true? Well, it's true because it comes closest to the creeds, and so we need John. If all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Paul, we wouldn't have Logos. Hmm. And I think Logos is super important for Christian theology and Christian history. I think that John brings us the closest to identifying Jesus with the Father, and I think that's the closest we get to the Trinity anywhere in the Bible. And I think that's valuable. Jesus' identity of his body with the Eucharistic elements. Now, this is something that's controversial because some people would say that that's a wrong interpretation of John chapter 6, that Jesus is still speaking metaphorically about eating my body and this kind of thing. But I like having a high Eucharistic theology. Yeah, meaning and, um, a, a real presence of Christ in – Exactly. bread and wine, yeah. Exactly. And it doesn't necessarily mean transubstantiation in the Roman Catholic sense, but it does mean real presence in some sense. Yeah, that's something that I also love having and affirm myself. And you really need John to get that. Hmm. Yeah, that's good to know. I like the also the ending of John where Jesus is unrecognizable in hmm. his resurrected body. I remember this from your book, Biblical Truths. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. You can believe in the resurrection of the body and even the resurrection of the flesh interpreted a certain way without having to force yourself to the belief that we know what the nature of that resurrected body will look like. Right, right. We don't have to believe that. In other words, it's like the point I made about the Big Bang Theory. You can believe in the creation without having to have a Christian way of scientifically fixing the creation. And so you can confess the resurrection without claiming that you know what the nature of that resurrected body will be. You don't have to. And John gives us some of those like weird, mysterious moments with the resurrected Christ. Yeah. You know, Mary doesn't recognize him. The disciples, and probably what is an additional, the, an addition chapter, chapter 21 is probably added later, I think, by somebody. But that's where you get the story of the disciples who say, let's go fishing. Mm. And 
they go out to the Lake of Galilee and they're fishing and Jesus walks along the beach and, and he says, did you catch anything? And they say, nope, not yet. He says, well, cast the net on the other side of the boat, you know, and they pull in, what is it? 153 fish. And the beloved disciple says to Peter, I think that's Jesus or that's the Lord. And so they couldn't recognize him. Right. And then they get, they get to the shore and Jesus has barbecued some fish for them and some bread and he makes them breakfast. And then the text says, none of them asked him who he was. Well, that proves that he didn't look like he had. The text wouldn't say they didn't ask him who he was because they knew he was Jesus. If he looked exactly like Jesus. Yeah, well, they would have recognized him right away. Exactly. Anyway, yeah. So you you have this bit in your book about how that's like our life sometimes. Can you, you say a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I just believe that that's what our faith is like. We don't experience the presence of Jesus in the way the ex- we experience the presence of other people. Hmm. Yeah, that, I think that's beautiful. I sent you the interview with Kenny, and you listened to it this morning before we talked today. And yeah, you, I loved it. You wrote me back a couple things you wanted to to say to to Kenny. So we've answered his sort of technical questions, but you you it's almost like you wanted to kind of get a give a pastoral note. And the first thing you said is. Let the ambiguity reign. Let the doubt continue. Why don't you just take that as a prompt and and roll with it? Well, I just think that he – but I think both you and he maybe talked a bit about how do we solve this. Hmm. I don't know if that was exact words you used. How do we get out of this conundrum or something? Yeah. And I wanted to make the point of don't solve it. Don't solve it at all. Why not? Because that's what faith is like. Soren Kierkegaard put it. Faith is like floating on 70,000 fathoms of water. Of course, we have anxiety because sometimes we don't want to float. We want to stand. But faith is like floating, and you don't need to stand. You're perfectly fine floating. You're not going to drown as long as you know how to float. Hmm. Just float. Right. Another thing you said is that in your mind, at least the Gospels of Mark and John were, were written to confuse us. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, absolutely. That? I mean, look at Mark. Mark, all the time, Jesus is saying, the text says explicitly, he spoke in parables so they would not understand. That's what it says. And when he then, in, inside the house, it takes him inside the house with the disciples, not outside with the crowd, then the disciples say, explain to us the parable. And the explanation of the parable, the sower that Mark gives The explanation doesn't match the parable at all. Just compare them. The explanation doesn't fit the parable. Hmm. And then, of course, it's no wonder that at the end of that chapter, it says they didn't understand him. Of course, (laughs) they didn't understand him. He he didn't give him an explanation. And then in John, over and over again, you know, the people are saying, explain this to us. And then he says, you're sons of Satan. You can't understand this. It's just so hard for those of us raised with a literalist interpretation of the Bible to do this, this move is so difficult for us because it goes against what we were told was a faithful reading of the text to take it in its plain sense on its face. Part of the problem is that a lot of people who are raised like that, they don't have a very good historical theological education. Of course not. In fact, many of the people who taught me that did not go to seminary and then taught me that. They And they've learned (laughs) it from modernism. So for example – Hans Fry and David Kelsey and George Limbeck, the theologians at Yale that I learned theology from finally, yeah, 
they would talk about the perspicuity of Scripture as an important doctrine. But they would explain that the perspicuity of Scripture doesn't mean that everything in Scripture is open to some kind of scientific literalist interpretation. Right. It's a doctrine that means that Scripture – you believe that Scripture will not lead you into damnation. Right. But that also means that you have to read Scripture in the community of faith and by, the, by trusting in the leading of the Holy Spirit. I bet they didn't teach you that in your evangelical church. <laughs> no. The perspicuity that we got was any person can pick up his Gideon's Bible in his hotel drawer and with a little bit of elbow grease can divine the true depths of God and Christ. So, Dale, I have this last question, but the way I have it written, it's not going to work anymore, but I'm going to read it to you and we'll talk about how we should mean it. So the way I have it written was, how does it help us to have these four pictures of Jesus jockeying for position in our minds and hearts? I now realize you're going to say they're not jockeying. It's not you're not supposed to solve it. Right. So maybe you can just say it better than I could say it for you. This is why when I was teaching every semester, I took my students, both my undergraduate students and my graduate students to the art gallery. And I forced them to look at lots of different paintings and statues and, you know, representations of Jesus or Paul or biblical scenes. And I just said, don't stop looking at it until you can see something true in it. Hmm. Just keep looking at it until you see something true. And if you can't see something true, you've not looked at it long enough. And then if you can't see something false, you've not looked at it from a Christian point of view long enough. Because something this artwork is saying to you is true, and something this artwork is saying to you is false. And you're not a good theologian until you can figure out which is which. That seems to be about the best place to end we possibly could. <laughs> Dr. Martin, thank you for your... I think you went way over the time you'd promised me. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. <laughs> it was too good, man. I'm sorry. Thanks for being flexible. Okay, well, have fun. Kenny, thank you so much for coming back on. First of all, do you feel like Dale answered some of your questions? He definitely addressed most of the things I was thinking about. When he was talking about not feeling like we have to solve anything, maybe it wasn't that I was hoping to solve um, any discontinuity between the Gospels, but it it feels like I'm more trying to solve my own way of understanding the Gospels and understanding John. And just lis- honestly, listening to that interview with Dale, I, I feel a lot closer to that now. So you kind of came in with these questions about John, and he sort of addressed those. But what I took from the conversation was this larger point of like, there are four different gospels for a reason. We should not try and harmonize them. We should let them speak to us the way on their own terms, basically, acknowledging that because they are not always compatible, not all four things will be true all the time. But like, let those four things be a little bit different. And then that does seem to kind of solve some of the tension with John. Yeah, definitely. I That is an inspiring way to think about them for me. You know, I'm inspired to 
to read Luke more, especially after listening to your conversation with him about Luke. And like, I can definitely see that the Jesus of Luke is the one I'm most inspired by and most comfortable with. Um, and I didn't, I didn't even really realize that was the, the Luke Jesus. Luke Jesus is definitely like my favorite Jesus when I was a super politically left college student wanting a lot of redistribution of wealth and <laughs> right. resources and yeah. stuff. Right. And I, and I'm still, you know, largely there. So I thought the, the discussion around atonement and kind of the death of Jesus. And I think I brought that up in some way um, about how I kind of, in my evangelical upbringing could only really see Jesus as this device to, to reconcile and, you know, get us out of eternal damnation and kind of seeing that as the John Jesus. But I really like the way that Dale pointed out that, that evangelicalism didn't get that from John. They just read that into John, which totally- And then once they have that reading of John, they then take that to every other gospel. Yes. And that helps just that, that kind of clarity. Um, already, as I've you know, read little bits of John since, since uh, first listening to that interview with Dale, I just already have less tension about it in my reading of it, which is nice. Something I'm definitely going to put in the show notes is Jean Vanier's commentary on John. Did we talk about that? Yes, I'm looking forward to reading that still. I haven't I haven't read it yet. I I did think it was really interesting that Dale used John 3:16 to kind of counter the claims made about the exclusivity of Jesus as the gatekeeper and it's often John 3:16 that's used for that. You know, because in my experience in uh, growing up in church, John 3.16 kind of served two roles. One, it was this incredibly inspiring and relieving, you know, saving work of grace. Also, it was like this door into a room where everyone who willingly walks through this door, who chooses to walk through this door is now safe in this room of salvation. And everyone outside the door who hasn't walked through it is not you know, they're out. I just love that Dale used that verse to claim a more universalist view. It's so, it's so interesting to me that a few words, you know, we can draw opposite meanings from. Well, I think that's probably because most of the time, you know, in an evangelical setting, they're going to combine that with John 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the father except for me. And you put those two things together That's often what people get, although that's a different conversation. And there's, of course, a whole lot of ways of reading John 14 that don't end up in that kind of strict exclusivist camp. But that's for another day. Right. I I really liked um, his talk about Jesus as the the revealer of truth in John and that um, what the Gospel of John is asking us to do is to recognize Jesus' identity as the revealer of truth, as the revealer of the true nature of reality. I loved that. It seems worth saying that, like, I had that conversation with Dale a couple months ago, and just his overall thesis has been kicking around in my head since then. And it's come up in conversation so many times. I'm just so grateful for this idea of, like, yeah, these competing visions of Jesus, which are not reconcilable completely, have their own places. 
And the church knew that from the beginning and they resisted harmonizing them. And it's just like so revolutionary when you can get these kind of early Christian understandings and then use those to subvert the later particular Christian understandings that you were given. To me, that kind of thing is never going to get old. Yeah, I do love that too. And, you know, it, that's easy easy to accept when you see theology as an unfolding like discussion or argument. Like when you see theology as the pursuit you see it as the asking of questions and not the answering of questions. Right. Learning to ask the right questions as opposed to learning to give all the right answers. Right. Because in that framework, then, well, yeah, of course, we have, the fact that we have four different versions is beautiful. Yeah. And if you anxiously need the answers, then the fact that we have four different versions is hugely problematic. <laughs> yes. So that was probably my favorite thing about it. But uh, Kenny, thank you so much, man, for being a part of this. And I just appreciated your input and your questions. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Dan. So we've got this brand new segment on the show this week where I answer one question posed by one of our patrons. And uh, some weeks I might not do it, mostly if the episode is particularly long, but I'll try and do it as regularly as possible. If you want to be one of the people who can submit these questions or help vote on which question gets answered, you can join the Patreon. Five bucks a month, patreon.com slash dancoke. You have permissionpod.com, click become a patron of course, you also get those two bonus episodes, access to the Facebook group, which is where I field these questions. Anyway, this question comes from Andrew. I'd love to hear about your own church transition. And uh, that's the transition of myself and my wife. It's not just me. We go to church together, as most married couples do, but not all. So, yeah, this is something that has actually come up kind of organically in a couple interviews now, but mostly it's been kind of offhand and for some other purpose, you know, within the conversation, and I haven't really given a lot of details, but I have had a few people ask me over email or in the Facebook group. So first, I'll talk a little bit about our old church, the one that we recently left, and why we left it. And then I'll talk about where we're at now and where I think we're headed. And I'm, I'm happy to be pretty transparent about all this in the hopes that it might be helpful for people. But I want to be clear that my wife Jaffrey and I left our church on very good terms. We love so many people there. We consider it a really healthy church. It was just time for us, as I'll explain. In general, I am of the opinion that all things being equal, people should stay in their faith communities as long as possible. And this is for a few reasons, not least the fact that, for instance, differences of opinion among co-religionists, people in the same congregation, is probably the most effective way to actually change religious institutions, especially when, in fact, they are in need of change. If we simply break off from each other when disagreements arise, then we just get more denominations, more schism, more echo chambers, where everyone thinks alike and therefore every claim and belief seem highly plausible to everybody involved because everybody they know believes the same stuff. There's something about the unity of the overall universal church that is powerful and valuable, and when we can, I think we should try and maintain and celebrate that unity. 
This is why I'm such a fan of churches that do the difficult and serious work of mixing racial groups. It can only be done with true commitment, meaning a diversity of race among staff and volunteers, and making aesthetic and stylistic choices that welcome people of non-majority groups. This is something that Jamar Tisby of the Pass the Mic podcast and the book The Color of Compromise has spoken with me about uh, on the Depolarized podcast in the past. And this is hard work. And for white churches, it means some white people won't keep their jobs or get hired or they get a job because they're the pastor's kid, etc. But I have seen it work in some churches and it's powerful and it really does feel more like the actual kingdom of God that we profess to believe in and long for. Anyway, that's kind of a long-winded way of saying we stayed as long as we could, which in our case was about 10 years. Our church was in the PCA denomination, which is a Southern-based conservative Presbyterian denomination. Uh, Tim Keller is probably the most famous PCA pastor in America, although he represents what is probably the more liberal half of that overall group. Our old church was itself and is now at the bleeding leftward edge of the PCA because it has female deacons, not elders or female pastors, but still a very rare thing in the PCA that we were sort of grandfathered into in some weird way that I don't totally understand. And our church, our old church, is also committed to racial reconciliation, which includes hiring, recently hiring an African-American pastor to both preach and run uh, children and family ministries. And he preaches like a black pastor. I mean, he has that kind of style. He's awesome. I already miss him a ton. Um, But that kind of thing is like what our church was doing. And so they really were at the leftward edge. And they're part of this smaller group within the PCA that's pushing for racial reconciliation, which, believe it or not, is a controversial topic at the yearly PCA conference. But still, the most progressive data point in the PCA data pool is still in the PCA data pool. And eventually it got to be too much for me. And what I mean is this. It has become increasingly clear to me that God is calling me to some kind of overt ministry. In fact, I think of this podcast as the primary example of that ministry at this point in my life. But as I pursue a counseling degree, I consider that vocational direction also as a kind of ministry. And who knows where we'll go from there. But given my own theological views, I was unable to do any substantive ministry at our church, leading the youth group, doing any adult education stuff. I could never have been ordained a deacon, certainly not an elder. And the main sticking point was my affirming stance regarding homosexuality. Although I'm sure if we had to come up with a longer list, I could sit down with any of the pastors or elders over beers and we could generate a longer one with no hard feelings involved. Another important factor that's become clear to me, especially as I've talked about this with my therapist, I should say, is that. Three years ago, I started attending the American Academy of Religion annual conferences. And at these conferences, I made some friends, some of whom are themselves theologians. And I realized that I was a member of an already existing community, and I just hadn't known it yet. In these circles, there was no reason to worry about a historical Adam. The inerrancy of scripture had long been significantly reframed or discarded for other options. Contemporary science was regularly consulted when working on theological projects. The question of homosexual inclusion kept very few people up at night, and there were women everywhere, preaching, teaching, getting PhDs, having better arguments and bigger hearts than my own. Just now I'm thinking of Bethany from the episode on God suffering with creation, 
I met her at AAR. I mean, the list goes on. The point for this story is not that this group is right about all those things. The point for the narrative here is that they were an actual functioning community full of people who obviously love God and people of serious personal devotional piety. I'm thinking of friends like Matt Brake and Jack Holloway who've been featured in Patreon interviews and theologians like Keith Ward, Trip Fuller, Tom Ord, Philip Clayton, Kyle Rogers, and more, all of whom who've been guests on the show. And I realized that both my intuitions and my faith experience aligned far more closely with these mostly liberal mainline Protestants than it did with a centrist evangelical Presbyterian mindset and experience. Combine this with my inability to function in ministry at the church, and the cognitive dissonance became too much for me. I've been the liberal guy in the more conservative room, so to speak, in every faith community I've been in since high school, and I think I'm kind of just ready for a change. Now, you might notice that I started out talking about my wife Jaffrey and I, but really I've only been talking about myself, and that's true. Jaffrey was a pretty small part of this decision process, which worried me as the end seemed to me increasingly inevitable. But we did talk about it throughout and as we got towards the end, and uh, I expressed all that, and she understood. And she says that left to her own devices, she probably would have stayed, and I think that's true, but I don't know how long she would have stayed. Uh, she has her own sticking points. And something I talk about pretty regularly on this show is the kind of granularity or detail that different people require of their theology. I require far more than Jaffrey does. So my issues are more robust, but our faith trajectories have been parallel enough that she co-signed onto the decision to leave. Now, emotionally, we've both only begun to mourn the loss of our church community. We're still in our community group that meets through that church, and how and in what ways we can stay involved remains to be seen. We plan to be there this coming Sunday for Easter, which was always our favorite service of the year, incredible music and beautiful liturgy. Uh, you know, as I said, there are real disagreements over many issues, but we have a lot of love for the people of that church, including everybody on staff. Um, I haven't received a single unkind word from anyone there about our leaving or about this podcast, even as I often take directly opposing viewpoints in certain episodes. I believe God is clearly at work in that community and we are going to miss it dearly. So that was a long answer to the first half. What are we up to now? This will be a shorter answer. I'm actually taking this break as a unique opportunity to visit a bunch of churches that I ordinarily would never visit. So far, I've been to a racially diverse evangelical megachurch, a Quaker service, a liberal Lutheran church, and what I can only accurately call a post-evangelical interfaith community. I've been taking notes and audio recordings, and I plan to do some episodes around these visits. Uh, but one thing I'll say is that it has been fascinating and really quite moving. It's a rare thing to be able to see Christians of all different stripes worshiping in their natural habitats, as it were. And it reminds me of the width of the Christian church universal. And I preach this kind of thing all the time. It's referred to as ecumenism, from which we get the word ecumenical, valuing all Christian expressions as opposed to simply the one expression I happen to think is the right one, or worse, the one expression I simply happen to have been brought up in. But it's really cool to be able to put my money where my mouth is and see what's actually going on out there. And I plan to visit a bunch more 
including Eastern Orthodox, Mennonite, a black church, etc. I'm excited. Now, in terms of where Jaff and I will ultimately end up church-wise, right now we are putting a few constraints on our search. Number one, we are looking for an open and affirming church. Not everybody needs to do this. Let me be clear about that. But for us, it seems like the right time for it. We want to see how the Christian faith is lived out in a community on completely the other side of that question that's not worrying about it anymore. Number two, we want to take the Eucharist every week. Sadly, this has knocked out some Methodist churches, which otherwise we might have looked at, but we got used to doing this uh, at our PCA church, and we really can't do without it. Number three, we are not interested in politics masquerading as religion. We do not want a hashtag resist community that happens to meet in a church building. Now, we know that religion has a political element, but we are centrist or moderate enough politically to know that Christ doesn't take only one side in American politics, no matter who is in the White House. And it might be hardest for us to combine those numbers one and three, open and affirming, but not suffocatingly political, but we're going to try. And even the Lutheran church that um, I visited, Jaffrey joined me, and it wasn't suffocatingly political that morning anyway. Now, I think probably we'll end up at an Episcopal church, possibly a Lutheran or United Church of Christ, or one of the other mainline denominations, but we'll see. So I hope that could be helpful to a few of you who might be considering a change or considering how long you can stay where you're at, etc. The last thing I'll say about this is that we don't have kids yet, so this is actually much easier. We have a lot of friends whose kids really love a particular church, parents don't really love it, and knowing how to weigh all those factors is very messy, or the parents love it and the kids don't love it, and they'd want to raise their kids in the faith, I understand. Uh, those of you in that situation, I don't envy you. Perhaps we will be in that same pickle sometime in the future. Anyway, peace to you guys. Uh, the normal outro stuff for this episode with Dale. I have links in the show notes to the Depolarize episode I did with Dale, where I did more biography about him. It's also just a cool episode. He talks about how liberal mainliners uh, had kind of dispatched with the idea of hell 70 years prior uh, to the forming of the evangelical right. There's also a link to Jean Vanier's book, Drawn into the Mystery of Jesus through the Gospel of John, that I mentioned with Kenny. There is a link to Dale's fantastic book, Biblical Truths. And finally, these episodes are intended to be resources, so please share them, even with people who might disagree with you, parents, friends, pastors, whoever. And let me know how that goes. I want to know how these conversations are going. You can also email me with questions you have that you'd like me to address, people you'd like me to interview, whatever is keeping you up at night. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. And of course, the Patreon. I've talked about it enough. You know, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. And I will see you guys next week. And also let me know if you liked this Q&A segment or not. If it doesn't work, that's fine. I'm not going to be offended, but I'm really curious what you think. Okay. Be well. Talk to you next week.